guys, so welcome to this week's episode. This week's episode is all about their futsal. This week I sit down and talk to Matt about his new project with himself and Jimmy Love uh, Madison, um, Barefoot Soul. They've produced, uh, both of them have produced a lot of music um, through the years, various bits and pieces, and had quite a career, or you know, part of career, hobby, whatever you want to call it, with, with their music. They've collaborated, um, doing a fantastic job of it as well. Um, and I had the chance to sit down with Matt himself and talk a little bit about his life story and how he's got to this point in and, and why now sort of thing. Matt falls barefoot, absolutely makes me shiver just thinking about it. Um, but that's the way he does it. Or in summer, winter, whatever it is, Matt plays barefoot and that's hence the barefoot song. So in, in the episode, I'll put the full song, the full song of the Hoodie Revolution. Um, a little bit different of a song, but uh, actually it's quite catchy, quite loud, quite like it. So yeah, stay tuned and enjoy. Here come a mean old rusty devil man Slither on a crooked line Got a black hole in his busted soul And ice cold smiley hide So my name is Matt White um, Been living here in the UK since 1991 uh, As you can probably tell by the Yankee Doodle dandy accent um, I'm not born and bred here But uh, um, I started thinking about coming to the UK from a really young age uh, So I grew up in in New Hampshire, in the northeastern United States, and um, I'm really pleased to be able to come and have a chat with you um, on your Outdoor Man podcast because um, whilst I'm not out in the thick of it every day, um, my background growing up is totally connected to outdoor life and growing up in a rural setting and uh, all of the good stuff that, that comes with that. So I guess you'd say spiritually I'm very connected to the earth, which is why I, whenever I perform my music and stuff like that, or if I'm just walking around the house, I'm usually barefoot, <clears throat> which is uh, something that people pick up on. But yeah, I came to the UK uh, with the US forces in uh, 91. Prior to that, I'd been uh, done some time touring in, in Germany with the Air Force and uh, really enjoyed my time. But by the time I got here, I'd wanted to settle down, um, get a job on the British economy and uh, starting to get into music over here. But um, having grown up in the States in that rural setting, um, it's always made me feel deeply connected to the earth and, you know, mountainous terrain, rivers, just being able to go out as a eight, nine year old kid up onto the back mountains without any sort of restrictions. Um, it's, I wish I could give that to my son, you know, now. Yeah. <clears throat> I have to say, it's funny you should say, because I'm very much the opposite. You said you've got, growing up, your aspirations to come to the UK. Mm. Why? Um, I guess performing arts, really, as a, as a broad stroke. But um, to be more specific, um, as I was growing up, my mother was a great uh, listener of all types of music, but you can imagine a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, there was still those reverberations of um, 50s, 60s music uh, coming through over the airwaves. And a huge part of that era 
obviously is is populated and contributed by the what they call the British invasion. So um, you know, other kids my age were probably listening to um, you know some of the up and coming hip hop and R and B and perhaps more eighties rock. I was still because I was listening to my mum's record collection and my dad's record collection. I was listening to the Beatles and uh, the Kinks and uh, the Clash as they started to come on throughout the punk era. I got turned on, you know, to the Sex Pistols, and so I was really focused on that British sound. I still loved American classic rock, but so that was one thread that was always calling to me. The other side of it was TV. We used to get Thames Television. After the watershed in the States. And uh, for lack of a better juvenile way of describing it, you could never at that time see any kind of, uh, any showing of the female form um, before the watershed on American TV at the time. So I used to love watching, like, uh, they'd put on uh, Monty Python for a half an hour. They sometimes put on uh, Benny Hill, which yeah. was extremely, whoa, it was mind-blowingly risque for American TV. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but rather than it just being a sort of a, oh, wow, you know, there's a bunch of ladies running around, it was the humor. Yeah. So the two main things that always made me think, God, I got to go to this place, was the music and the sense of humor. There's nothing like it in the States. Or there were some people trying to be sort of like it, but you could always tell it was a... a, a a poor man's copy. The, the break was still on and couldn't quite push the limit. And... Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It wasn't natural. And, and that British uh, self-deprecating uh, sarcasm, but intelligent sarcasm, uh, sort of left brain comedy, just blew me away as a kid. And I thought I always wanted to come here. It's funny because for me, I'd want to go to America. Yeah. Because for the, for the hunting and, 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 and everything else... That the Americans have got it so, I wouldn't say so easy, that's probably the wrong phrase, but they've got it so good, I think, because in the UK we are very cut with, um, this is my estate, this is my, you know, you can't come in unless you pay me. But like in America, you buy your tag and you can go hunting in the, in the hills. Mm. And, and you're very free to do that. And, and, and it, I'm, I have to sound a little jealous of that because... Mm. Everything costs in the UK, and it and it blows my mind that somebody wants to come away from that. And but it's interesting to see it. So, with the music, when did you start playing? Is that is that was that a, a later in life type thing, or was that from a young age? Well, I'd always had aspirations as to be a, a singer, um, and there was an American band that I really loved that. Uh, even though my, whilst my dad was quite liberal, it's my dad mainly that raised me um, after he and my mum split. Um, but after sort of listening to his stuff and listening to the British stuff, there was a couple of American rock bands <laughs> uh, that I really liked, and, and Kiss was one of them. Um, Why not? And I used to love the pageantry of the stage show they put on, probably just as much as I liked some of the grooves in the music. So I was really thinking about starting to get this idea that, because um, I've always been a bit of a, I want to say show off, but a bit of an obnoxious child. Hey, look at me running around and doing this, that, the other skits and whatever with my sister, um, you know, as kids can be. But I, then I started to connect that, wow, this there's a life if you want to be a performer. There's this kind of a 
a creativity to it and a pageantry to it that really appealed to my uh, sense of inner performer. And so I was thinking about myself being a singer, probably from the age of eight or nine, and then um, watching other performers uh, as I was growing up, I started to feel more and more inspired. People like uh, Ray Charles or Billy Joel or Joe Cocker, that ilk particularly would still, just thinking about it now, makes me, I get that chill down my spine because of their charisma, their uh, just sheer human force. And I always felt really connected to that. So I started thinking it's more than just getting in front of people and, and singing. It's really about connecting to a moment and a, and a point of expression and how do you convey that. And again, going through back to the barefoot thing, how that connects you to the earth and the people that are on it. And I, th I just thought, I got to get in the flow of that. How do I get there? And I struggled throughout my high school uh, career in the States to find like-minded kids because I came from such a small town um, and everybody was into heavy rock and I, want, I was trying to look for something more ethereal and soulful and it wasn't until I came to the UK that I found some really like-minded guys to um, knock about with and the funny story is on that you know I came from the land of blues and soul where it originated and had to come all the way to the UK to find some folks that were really properly into it and students of it to cut my teeth in a blues band and you know so whereas you got the Mississippi Delta in the southern United States I had to come to the Orwell Delta <laughs> to, to learn the blues and but that's you know how it came about for me. Um. I lost my train of thought because we start talking about blues. Um, do you think if you'd grown up somewhere else in America that that may have been different, music-wise? I think if I'd have... Um, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I'm, I'm possibly looking back at it through rose-tinted glasses, as you do, but I do remember listening to most music and being able to find something either interesting or redeeming or attractive about it. Um, I probably didn't get jazz when I was young. I probably didn't get as much of the country and Western thing when I was young. But I'm not sure that locality had anything to do with it. Um, it was probably more to do with my parents. My, like I said, my mum, when I would go and visit her, just listening to her record collection, I, ha I owe a lot to her taste in music and her willingness to share that and I just I just remember she's always had like a really nice hi-fi and it was always on whether it was the Moody Blues or the Beatles or ELO or Bob Seger or it was just always that again I get this chill when I think back to those days and that didn't have anything to do I don't think with geography but um, I mean I suppose if I'd have grown up in Cuba then I <laughs> would have a different sense of what good music was yeah. but I think we would have always felt musically connected. It's just my DNA. It's, it's funny because I don't... I've, it's always one one parent who you take the music from. Mm. As in, like me, I'm more rock, punk. Though I listen to... I can listen to most music now. Um, but I could never take a mum's because I'm just not a fan of Ronan Keaton, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but Life is a roller coaster. It, you it, just want to get off. Exactly. <laughs> just let me off this damn thing. Um, and... 
I've had a love for music for a lot for a long time, but don't ever really sort of do anything with it. I mean, we spoke briefly about I used to play the drums. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a brief because I, I learned the drums right at the end of my high school year, and then I was sort of going into college and, and wanting to go into the countryside. So I, I probably really should have carried on with it, but I wanted to go beating, and my drum lessons were on a Saturday, and shooting was on a Saturday, so earning the money was more important than spending the money on the lessons, and I never really sort of went further. But I have to say, it was... I played drums uh, in a little band at school, a bit of Blink-182, that sort of thing. Not that many. Good stuff. Not that many, sort of. Um, uh, Travis, um, he's a lot better than I am. Um, Love a bit of Travis. But he... One of the things I love playing... Actually, out of all of it, his dad had some jazz at home and some blues. Mm-hmm. And to play the drums to that and to pick up a different style from going to full-out blink light twos, then flipping the coin and, and doing a bit of jazz actually was enjoyable. It's a lot more subtle, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's been a transition for me, a kind of a, as you say, a flip of the coin. I guess when I really got into music... Performing-wise, my uh, attack was much stronger, and I can't, that also comes with the vim and verve of youth. And um, the first band I was playing with, second band I was playing with over here when I got to the UK was um, Swagger, and that had started to take after we did a kind of a rocky blues funk bit. That had started to take a sort of a jazzier style, and at that time, uh, I, I wasn't that interested, but. As my musical tastes and predilections started to, started to calm down a bit, and I would listen more to the music rather than just feel it, because I've always been a feel listener and a feel performer, but started to develop my ear a bit more, and then jazz really started to appeal to me, because I suddenly realized there was that same element of feel and soul, just in a different way that my ear hadn't previously been attuned to. And yeah, it's a lovely journey, isn't it? Yeah, just to pick something up different. Even when you've been so hell-bent on practising, you know, going down a certain way and you've been practising with a band doing this and the other, just to go home and just put the headphones on and to just sit back and do something totally different, with a different, different, different style as well. Mm. I loved it. Um, so I'm going to skip a few questions and come back to some more. Okay. Is... Gigging. Can you remember your first gig? I remember the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was actually mega. It's, I thought it was going to be one of the things that was going to be an absolute car crash or it's going to be awesome. It was mega um, in terms of how it felt. Yeah. I've got a tape recording of it on a cassette. Um, I went between my... What you'd say in the UK is year 11 and was it year 10 and year 11 um what we would call in the states are after my sophomore year in high school which is year 10 i had the opportunity to go to uh, a summer school to do some additional like college prep work for the courses i was looking at doing following on going to going to uni later and i qualified for um a physics course and a writing course i did pretty good at the writing course um, physics, although I could do it, I just, I love the, 
mechanics of it, but I didn't really want to do the grunt work. Yeah. So I would sort of I just sort of squeak by on that. That aside, for extracurricular activity, there was a, a talent show at the end of this six weeks, and so you got all these post-pubescent kids in the middle of the summer, a hot summer in New Hampshire, um, running around this incredibly beautiful college campus, way too young to be there really, but trying to act like you, you got it, all preparing, doing these studies, but then preparing for this talent show. And I met some like-minded guys, some kids there, and we did, we got a little band together. Um, I can't even remember their names. Um, Todd Mativier on guitar, Josh... Hartnett on bass, um, and a couple of other kids, if you're out there, shout out St. <laughs> Paul's 1986, summer school. Um, we were the band, and we did <laughs> Summertime Blues, because Ferris Bueller's Day Off had just come out, so that was the, who, the, the Who's cover of um, Eddie Cochran's number, Summertime Blues. Um, Twist and Shout by the Beatles. And of course, you got to do Stairway to Heaven, right? Yeah, if you're yeah. an aspiring rock band. Yeah, yeah. And we just about held it yeah. together. The first two were spot on. Stairway to Heaven started to, it was, you know, a little bit loose, fast and loose at the end. Foundations were going. <laughs> well, the feel was there, but the, thought, the whole thing of it was there was an auditorium with all the student body there. Some of their parents had come in. So I guess maybe there was between four and 500 people in there. So for a first gig, spoiled rotten. That's a, that's a solid, isn't it? And then we were the only band. So after all the other stuff had happened and the band came on and played a bunch of rock stuff, everyone, everybody went berserk. So of course, you know, dined out on that for years. You know, yeah, yeah. Rock gods. But I was 15, singing out of key, um, getting the timing wrong and having a damn good time doing yeah. it. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Uh, we had so much fun. And so that really, you know created the monster <laughs> what is the most memorable gig the most done? memorable gig um that's got to be one of them because it planted the seed but um um i haven't you know no, no, there's no real nothing shapes out at you um i guess is it i had to i couldn't distill it down to one but there's the type of gig where um, you get a certain energy back from the crowd. And I got to say, having the privilege to play on, say, like the BBC Suffolk uh, radio stage at uh, Music in the Park in Ipswich. You just jump on my questions now. Oh, you <laughs> um, but go on, go on. That type of gig where, you know, uh, you get this opportunity, kind of like a, a step up from that early Everyone's there for the music, aren't they? Yeah, they're there for the music. I mean, it's a free entry thing. You know that you're putting good energy back into this sort of melting pot of uh, contribution to <clears throat> all, all the, the supporting network of what makes that day so amazing. And being invited by a, an incredibly... Uh, giving and a wonderful supporter of local music in uh, BBC Radio Suffolk, Stephen Foster, uh, who just tirelessly recorded bands over the years and made sure that local live musicians had a, uh, a podium, you know, to show their stuff. Being a part of that 
and that type of gig, when you know you rock up and you're normally a pub band that plays to say 100 people tops in a, in a, in a local pub, and then you go on stage and there's four or 5,000 people there, I mean, that again, wow, wow, what a rush. rush. <clears throat> it's, it's just fantastic. And it's not about, look at me. It's about, I get to, I get to connect yeah. with all these people and say what we want to say and sound how we want to sound and, and share that moment and be shooting lightning bolts out your fingertips. Yeah. It's just beautiful to share that with everybody. So it's that type of gig. Um, I think much bigger than that and it would feel less personal. Yeah. You know? And I suppose with that sort of thing and that, and that way that is, you could blindfold every person there and you still have the same, the same effect because it's... It's not about looking at the band, it's about listening, isn't it? And hearing and feeling how, how it all it's goes. It's never been about looking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, some barefoot geek running around like, the stage we've all, tripping we've, over We've all gear. got our niches, do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, this what, oh, we didn't do 2020, obviously, because of, you know, everything that's going on. But 2019, I think I was really pumped up. We hadn't been on for a couple of years and we got a chance to go on with the new version of Matt White and the Emulsions. And um, first song in, 20 seconds in, took a step back, tripped over Stevie's guitar rig and did a roly-poly. Knocked my guitar off its stand. Straight back up for You know. Back in. That's what it's about. Yeah, so it's never been visual with us. <laughs> what happened after the radio then? So you done, you done, you done, you done, you done, um, the, uh, you, on the you know in, um, in Ipswich with that did you get did, did work come in after that for, for, for Matt Watt and the emulsions um, or did it stay steady because you mean you were busy last year no I mean last year not so much but I, I think when you gig more I mean certainly uh, yeah having the opportunity to play in front of 5,000 people um, gets you noticed but I gotta say that the actual week in, week out, grafting in pubs got more of the work in. But, you know, uh, because of the way I was approaching it before, we never had an agent, never. I mean, it's a pub band, you know, playing yeah. other people's stuff. So you got to be realistic about what your expectations are with that. But most of the work came in uh, during our busiest periods just from being out there grafting. There was one great little gastro pub in Bury St. Edmunds, Benson Blake's it was. Um, unfortunately, uh, that, that outfit's no longer running, although I think they still do like a gin distillery thing, which is really cool. Go check them out, look up, look them up. Um, Tim Blake's a great entrepreneur. Um, but he was a good supporter uh, uh, and gave us a mouthpiece at a time when the band was going through a, uh, an unplugged iteration. And I really wanted to take the band into a more sort of acoustic style. All the same rock material and blues and soul and that, but just unplugged. Um, and so we played there once a month. And the work that came in from that came in by accident, actually. Funny story. We were rehearsing this uh, unplugged style, because we hadn't done it before as a, a four-piece. And our drummer, Paul Reed, couldn't get to a couple of the rehearsals. So back at my old house, we're sitting in the, the garage with um, Andy Trill and Steve Mears. And um, we do a couple of acoustic songs and I record them, <clears throat> just roughly with a iPad or something. And we stick them up on YouTube or Facebook 
to really to give to Rido, not to go, hey, look at what we're doing, because it was unfinished work. And so Reedy, Just a bit of fun. Yeah, Reedy, look at what we're doing. Can you get the, the, the drum licks sorted out for this? And that unplugged stuff <laughs> went through the roof, totally unplanned. So you never know what's going to be the, you know, catch people's imagination. Yeah. And, and, and people are weird. I've, just, I've discovered this from, from doing the podcast. You know, you think, oh, yeah, this would be a great, a great um, you know, thing to put in. And I get piss-all feedback from it. And then I do, I do something absolutely random and, and to the left of what I was going with it. And the feedback you get is awesome. I mean, the, the first... I mean, all my audio is, is different on most of my episodes because I've been playing around and getting used to it because I'm, I'm a gamekeeper first and yeah. idiot second. And, well, I'm a full-time idiot, I suppose. But, like, I wasn't going to put my granddad's podcast out there, the one with, his, with the wild fowling, because I'd really messed up with the audio. And then I sat down and thought about it and thought, Do you know what, I've done it with granddad, it's a great story. His audio's good, mine is horrendous. It's like I'm interviewing him from a well. He's at the top of the well, I'm downstairs. Hello! Sort of thing. <laughs> and, do you know what, the feedback I had from that was brilliant. Everyone comments on it. And I just thought, do you know what? That was one of the worst recordings I'd done physically recording. Yeah. But yeah, actually, out of it has come something brilliant. And it's, yeah, people are weird. They just don't know what they want. Um, well, like, there's, there's that. And um, <clears throat> I think that the, there's an element of, this isn't my quote. Um, it isn't, but I'll, I'll rephrase it. It's that, when you're, especially with music or rock and roll, people want truth. Yeah. So it's another element of um, performing or doing something that's real. I think people are very perceptive and can see straight away if uh, there's no truth to a performance or something that's going on. And when things are really meticulously planned out and everything's got to be just so, I think you lose that human element and so in step with what you're saying I think the reason people want to see that that imperfection sometime is because we can all relate to that things don't always go exactly as you expect them to be and we'd almost prefer to see something with a bit of tarnish on it than we would to see this beautifully perfect yes, crystal thing clear yeah. <clears throat> because um, as long as they can hear you and, and I used to worry about that yeah, um, I still do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a certain thing. That can can the actual content get across? Of course, if it, if it's all white noise, then you've got a problem. But I think if in the main, if you can get the point across, worrying about the perfect chord, uh, the perfect resonating on the guitar, the perfect pitch, you know, it's not always as, as important as here I am. You're you're interested in this stuff or you're not, yeah. and I'm human like you. And that's so important. Yeah. Genuineness, you know? Yeah. Genuine, genuineness and passion. Mm. If you, I think if you've got them, I think whatever you're doing will go away. Mm. Whether it will go as far as you want it to go is a different story. Mm. But people want that passion and, gen, and, like you said, to be genuine. Yeah. 100%. Um, one thing I've never spoke to you about, um, and I've only been told about it briefly from, from Sarah, is the voice. Oh, yeah. So... You auditioned for that, didn't you? I did, yeah. And got through the first part, but yeah. then all went Pete Tong for home reasons, or was it home reasons, or just didn't go very far? Um, I can't. I, as I said, I've only sort of been told it briefly. 
they didn't really go Pete Tong in as much as I gotta say I didn't whilst at the outset I really fancied having a go I didn't really respect the process and to be quite fair to it I kind of bottled it right um, over the years It goes back to the question of truth, really, and being genuine. Over the years, I sort of developed a stagecraft and a performance craft that very much relied upon uh, interaction with the crowd. I find it extremely difficult to turn up at a gig and put on a brave face if there's five people there and they're disinterested. Um, played a beautiful place up north, uh, sort of not far from where you're from. And it was a panelled room. And we got in there and the band was on form, doing what we normally do. But everybody was seated and it was golf claps all around. And God, uh, I know you were asking me what my favourite gigs would be. That would be my worst nightmare. Because I couldn't at attach the performance to a feedback from people on a visceral level. And I thrived on that. Yeah. So coming back to your question about the voice, it's it's... It's a cookie cutter kind of thing. In the first round, when you go around to try out, they're looking for raw talent. And is the talent possibly good enough for something that can make it, is it worthwhile to bring into the front of the judges? So I did that in Ipswich and then went down to London and brought my son with me, who's way more talented than me and actually is the right thing to be going for something like The Voice. And I listened to all the kids warming up. It's mostly kids. There's hardly anyone my age. And I got in front of the judges and I just couldn't feel it, you know? So when I say I bottled it, I just felt like it's really hard to perform honestly in front of one person. And that's what it needs. That's the kind of thing that they need. But for me, uh, I don't, it sounds like kind of a cop-out to say it's, it's dishonest performance for me or not genuine, but I couldn't feel it. Yeah, can't get into it, can't give you a good performance. Yeah, which is rubbish for me yeah. because the whole point of someone that, that's that professional is you do what you do no matter where it is and you, you get on with it and you do it. So um, I just didn't have that in me. I think if I were to do it again, that would be different. But then again, you know, I saw, I saw there's a guy that's not far from here that we have dear friends from, from Coggeshall that know him well, Matt Cardle, went through... I can't remember if it was The Voice or UK's Got Talent or whatever, but he's a great singer-songwriter, really good local talented guy. And he won or came in some place, and I can't remember his history, but I know he got into the system and I don't want to speak for him. But um, my understanding is that, that when he got into it, that wasn't really quite what he expected. He had a lot of producers telling him how the music should be, his original music should be just so, and he should do this and he should do that. And um, I'm not made for that kind of thing. No, that's like being put into a gutter and running that way. It doesn't doesn't yeah, I mean, flow how you want it to flow. I mean, I get that you got all these industry execs that know how to make money out of music. but If it's um, not you, it's not you. Yeah, I, I would feel I may as well go back and do IT or some other job that my, I could make money at. But my heart wasn't really in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, i got to say it's a combination of elements. But it, didn't, it didn't really go wrong. People were lovely. Uh, um, just wasn't my thing. So we've touched on best and worst. 
What's the most funniest gig you've done? What is the one that everyone's got that one that gone, do you know what? Jesus Christ, but that was good. Or hilarious. It's funny for the wrong reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this was with Swagger. <laughs> Did we talk about this? I don't know. I think me and you may have had a conversation oh, okay. about what's coming. Um yeah, I got invited to, sorry, was playing in a band called Primitive Cool with John Adams, who was a great local musician, great guitarist, good personality. Um, and he had, before I joined him with Primitive Cool, been in a really popular band with American female front singer, Penny Parks, who sadly passed away, in the band called Lacey Street Blues Band. And they were mega. Um, they were running around the same time as the Mean Red Spiders were going. Anyway, step forward, was in Primitive Cool with John, and, and then uh, from that band I went on to do Swagger, which is more of a hard-edged blues, so funk and soul. And John uh, loved uh, race cars and stuff, and he had a Lotus Caterham 7. Beautiful car, took me out for a ride in it once. And so he's a member or new members of the Caterham 7 club in the UK. And uh, Swagger had been going a year or two, and John gave us a call very kindly and said, no, you guys are going strong right now. Um, we'd like a good, hard, sort of hitting blues band to come down and play. We're going to, the Caterham 7 Club goes to Le Mans in France every year, and um, we'd like you to come down and do the show for us. We're like, what? Crazy, you know? Take this old beat-up, we had a beat-up British rail van, uh, yellow really bad rusted out wheel arches and uh, 55, 54 miles per hour. I mean, hammer to the floor, just barely holding together. We called her the flying custard. So we're going to pile into this van, drive all the way to Le Mans. I can't remember how long it took. We must have broken down a few times. We did and got down there and it was gridlocked. Great road trip, got down there, gridlocked. What's going on? We all pile out. We realize this poor fellow's jammed his caravan under an overpass and he's panicking. He's on his own. So we get out. We let some air out of his tires. We unhook it. We back the caravan out. Long and short of it, we kind of saved him. He said, he said what are you guys doing? He said, well, we're playing for the Caterham 7 Club tonight. He says, oh, come by the caravan park. I'm parked right next door. It's where I'm going to be camping. I want to say hello. So he's like, all right. So we ping by. I'm starting to get a sore throat and panicking about the gig, really bad, just coincidentally. And we go by this guy, he gives us a bunch of duty-free. In that duty-free, he gives me a bottle of Glenfiddich. Well, I don't know how old I was at the time, 25, 26. Never drank neat whiskey in my life, <laughs> never. I just wasn't a spirits drinker. I might, you know... Budweiser, the Glenfiddich. Yeah. <laughs> it's a steep learning yeah. curve. In that. So you can guess what's coming. Um, <laughs> so he says, oh, you got a sore throat. Have this Glenfiddich. And we're like, no, I can't take that. He says, no, just take a couple of tots and it will sort it right out. If he says so. So we get in, we get doing this gig and I have a tot. Everything's going fine. It's going great. Crowds into it. Nice marquee. Really nice stage. Looked after all the backstage arrangements. Great sound on the desk. Band is pumping. Everybody's up dancing. Throat's starting to go. Have another talk. By this time, the medicinal 
elements. <laughs> it started to go by the by, and the glenophytic started to kick in. I'm getting out with the crowd. I got cordless mic, doing the thing. And I used to wear these, what can only be said is like a string of Noah's Ark animals around my neck carved out of wood because I thought it looked cool with my poncho and my Stevie Ray Vaughan hat and maracas and all that. And just accidentally as I'm whirly gigging around, this comes off my neck. So it either hooks on somebody or whatever. And I become enraged and convinced that someone has torn this off my neck like that. So I go from happy stage performer to Murderous. fighting Irish, you know, <laughs> <laughs> fighting Scotsman, I should say. Uh, I got the Glenfiddich rage descended and wouldn't stop shouting at people, running around. And finally, the drummer came down off the stage, George Fothergill. Thank you, George. I know you're out there, brother. Um, <clears throat> pins me to the floor and says, Whitey, you got to knock this off. You're going to get arrested in a minute. You're really flipping out and you're scaring everybody. And I'm a mess. And uh, I come back, you know, to um, have a go again or something that crossed at George. I'm mad at George now. And finally, the Lotus security just chucked me over the fence outside the barrier. So I'm kicked out of my own gig, <laughs> <laughs> sobbing in the pasture next door, out of it. Um, and the story is on the way home, as I sort of come to, and I'm feeling a bit blue around the gills, I headbutt. They stop in a lay-by because I say I'm going to be ill. I headbutt, kind of half headbutt the uh, sliding door open, don't ask me how. Go out and I chuck myself over another fence in a field and get lost for about a half an hour while the other guys are looking for me. And um, awesome gig. Yeah. <laughs> Living life. Yeah. So the last We question. can laugh about it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just about it. <laughs> Still a bit tender. Never got invited back to Le Mans. Why not? And we did take the flying custard around the track. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, um, so my last question for you. So what's next? What's next? Ah, well, um, the great news is that for me personally, I'm uh, just starting a new sort of journey, um, knocking corporate life on the head, like properly. So just stepping totally out of the old um, corporate role that I was in with the family business and uh, taking music on full time. And I've never done that before. It's always been able to, you know, when I could fit music in, in and around work and uh, to pay the bills and so on. And the changes with uh, the pandemic and global economy and everything has sort of led me to back to this uh, origin, this center that's always been there kind of waiting. And it's always been a question to me, well, can I do it? And I've doubted it, um, really for no good reason, because I've never had a proper crack at it. And any time we've ever delved, it's always been successful. Yeah. You know, whether that's at a regional level or, you know, at a gig level, whatever, there's always been, uh, and I'm ever grateful for it, a, a lot of positive feedback. And um, wrote a great album with the band Swagger in 1998, you know, co-wrote most of the songs on there um, with the other lads in the band and 
have always been thinking about getting back to that. And that's a long, long time to, to be unproductive songwriting wise. So the next step, and we're immersed in it right now with some co-writers and uh, a pathway to bring some things to market is writing um, an album of my original material. Uh, that's just me working on a project with the boys from Swagger again digitally because one Graham has emigrated to Australia. G'day mate, come back to us sometime soon. Um, he's way out over there but we can collaborate digitally on that project and something I'm really looking forward to but haven't started yet uh, apart from reaching out to some local artists is over this 25 years or so that have been gigging and performing and working with other musos here in mostly East Anglia, I've had the privilege to work beside some really inspiring um, folks. And those folks, uh, a lot of them have written their own material and published it in different guises. And, and um, there's some great work out there, which I feel hasn't had uh, the, either the exposure or just the right time in the market so to where it's taken off. So this third project I'm going to be working on is to take uh, songs that have particularly inspired me from their catalog and re-release them, record them um, with their permission and try and get that material out there and up there. Um, and if it does no more, then put that good inspirational energy back into the pot that I drew from then that's job done. The kicker would be is, is, you know, if they can get PRS or royalties from that song going back out there, because um, that would be awesome. You know, the song songs would get their recognition. So there's people like um, Nolan Wiltz, a uh, fantastic performer. He's actually from Louisiana. Came over here to learn the blues guitar from, uh, <laughs> after he got out of the Air Force, to learn the blues from Tony Vines. Tony Vines is another one, great guitarist uh, that played with the Mean Red Spiders. Um, th there's loads of artists. Um, Shane Kirk has uh, been, been a stalwart, uh, great, great uh, local musician in, in many different guises for over 30 years locally, probably longer, Shane. I don't know the history. <laughs> um, you know, those are just a few. Um, so that's probably going to be about 20 songs. A fourth project is to do some covers from mainstream artists that have inspired me and just send them only to them yeah. as a thank you. Um, again, just to put that good energy back out there. So there's a lot. Yeah, a lot going on. A lot of irons in the fire right now. And um, Where are you going to be when people want to find you? Where? Uh, if you've got that for, for a long time, right here. <laughs> Making the magic happen, creating the content. Um, it's hard to say. Um, do, if you mean like presence online. Yeah. Um, I'll give you some details and, and you can put them out when you know the, you're ready to release that yeah. in the full circle uh, of this podcast. Main reason being is um, the marketing is uh, early days. One of the things we're doing... Um, with the folks that I'm collaborating with, is, is not worrying about that right now. Yeah, no. I used to get it the wrong way around. I used to be like, what's the band name? Uh, what's the logo? What's the da 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 da? And now it's like, that'll come when it comes. Yeah, that, it's almost like secondary, and it'll, it'll name itself, it'll present itself when the body of the content is ready. And so that's, that's what, what it's all about right now. It's yeah. just saying yes to any idea. So, where can people find me um, if they want to? 
get in touch. Um, they can message me for the moment on um, Matt White Unplugged on Facebook, or they can message Matt White in the Emulsions. Um, that will take some sort of solo uh, encapsulation in future with a website and all that. But uh, Cool. Yeah. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity, and good luck. Thanks for watching. Um, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, it all helps. And also, if you comment, give me some positive, I'm not saying you give me positive stuff, but give me something I can work with. If you, say, if you think it's bad, say why you think it's bad. Don't just slate it, give me a reason, and I can try and fix that reason. The idea is I want to make good content for you, so you come back and, and, and watch more. Also, all the links and for everything for Outdoor Man and for Bear for Soul is in the bio. And also, check out Outdoor Man's Instagram. Um, there's merch on there to be had, t-shirts um, and a few other bits and pieces, hoodies. Um, and also the Duke Cannon products, um, which I can't rate enough. Um, Duke Cannon have produced some fantastic soaps, the beer soaps, smell like a man. You know, just deodorant, proper manly stuff. Um, my other half uses the um, shower gels. They actually get you clean. Don't smell of sweat so much. It is good stuff. So I'll leave you um, with the um, Hoodoo Revolution from Barefoot Soul. Thanks for watching. Enjoy. Here come a mean old rusty devil man Slither on a crooked line Got a black hole in his busted soul And ice cold smiley hides behind He got all those silver bullets in your barnyard The safety's never on When it tweets by midnight cable light And sits back till the fallout's begun Spitting poison promises
hard to comprehend an end to the ongoing suffocation of this beautiful nation when the frustration and consternation at constant dispensations of injustice and unrepentant criminality are sheltered by crooked illegality. With no leading, just tax cheating, draft dodging, and self-inflated hyperbole, then what have we? An empty shell of democracy, no matter your party, it's plain to see. Doesn't have to be this way. We all stand up today. When the outlook is most bleak, push back hard. Don't turn your cheek. We focus on commonality and see that these unqualified controllers of you and me are only in control so long as we allow them to be. Raise your spirit, mobilize, educate, and continue pushing back till the levee breaks. Much love to you, revolution.